I'm Dean Jackson. He's Joe Polish. And this is the I Love Marketing Podcast. Jackson and Joe Polish. What's up? <laughs> What's up? We got a very special guest tonight, don't we? Yes, we do. We do. We have a very, very special guest. A person that uh, you know is one of the most incredible writers uh, in the world, in my opinion, and just a very smart, brilliant dude. And he's also a friend of mine and yours, Dean. So we can you know goof around here. But his name is Mr. Tim Ferriss. The uh, best-selling author of two fantastic books. I was First just going to say two-time. Don't don't sell them short there. Two-time. New York Times bestseller and everything else bestseller. Mr. Tim Ferriss, who's uh, somewhere in some hotel on a cell phone, hopefully going to sound really high quality for all of us. Uh, Tim, first off, thanks for uh, joining us. And where are you? What are you doing? I am uh, outside in Palm Springs on my iPhone, and yes, you heard me correctly, Joe. I have actually purchased my first wow. iPhone as of about wow. ten days ago. My first smartphone. Uh, Alert the media. Compared to my Flintstones clamshell phone that I had prior to this. Uh, well, but it's nice to be here. So thanks. Well, for thank me. you, thank you. And and you, by the way, you wrote you wrote the the Four Hour Work Week and your latest book, The Four Hour Body, which are both fantastic. We'll we'll talk about those a, a little bit, but we're going to really ask you about marketing. But going yeah. to your phone. Your smartphone, I remember having a conversation with you, I don't know, not too long ago about, you know, them actually being called dumb phones because of the way that they control most people's lives. And I think one of your mm-hmm. methodologies for not just getting invaded by, I don't know, maybe technology, emails or whatever, was to purposely not have a smartphone. Was that your reason for it or what? That was one of several reasons uh, because I, I didn't feel like I had the discipline, quite frankly, and the self-control at that point if I had email in my pocket to not check it constantly. Right. Uh, and uh, I realized a few things, uh, not to dwell on this subject, but with the iPhone, number one, it's actually not terribly convenient to type on the iPhone, which is almost self-correcting in a way because it's such a pain in the ass that I want to minimize the amount of typing I do. Uh, second is I have not set email up on the iPhone. And I've also just limited the, the number of apps that I've downloaded. Uh, and the type of apps that I've downloaded. So, so far, it's actually been much more helpful than harmful. And it is on Verizon also, which to my knowledge, does a very poor job of transmitting calls overseas. So that was another concern of mine. I, did, I didn't want to have an international phone when I traveled. And I just came back from four weeks in Colombia, Panama, and Jordan, where I had no computer, no phone, and no calendar, which was fantastic. But... That's my piece on my new adoption of a smartphone. Wow. Is that, is that an exclusive? Is that a world uh, premiere announcement? Right that here? is a world exclusive. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, everyone, you heard it here first at ilovemarketing.com. Okay, so uh, let, let me say to everyone listening, if you're listening from iTunes, uh, you can actually get the complete transcripts of this conversation on ilovemarketing.com and 
I've done, um, you know, a really great uh, interview with Tim on the 4-Hour Body for Genius Network, and I'm going to post the link for free for people to listen to my interview with Tim on his book, The 4-Hour Body, about fitness and female orgasms and all kinds of crazy stuff. You can also <laughs> buy that interview on Amazon if you want the money to go to the Make-A-Wish Foundation, because we do that also if you want to make a donation. But uh, So just want to give everyone uh, that. And then, Tim, let's let's talk about... What I love marketing is all about, which is is marketing, and uh, um, you know what, what's your definition of marketing? What's the Tim Ferriss's like? What do you think of when you hear the word marketing? I think marketing is very frequently confused with selling. I think it's also confused with uh, PR. And marketing to me is very simple. It is understand identifying and understanding a group of people and matching a product or service to those people. And that product or service doesn't need to be a paid product or service. It could be a book. It could be a blog post. It could be a message. It could be propaganda. It could be a political viewpoint. It could be a car. It could be an iPhone app. It could be any number of things. But ultimately, it is identifying and understanding a group of people uh, well enough so that you can match uh, what they need to them. And I think that the article that most reflects how I feel about marketing is one called 1000 True Fans, which is written by Kevin Kelly, who is a founding editor of Wired Magazine. Mm -hmm. And the point he makes is that if you are able to identify and reach your thousand true fans, the thousand people who are most likely to be your, your early evangelists, early adopters, and proselytizers, then your marketing job is done and you can focus on other things like improving your product. Uh, and I think that's very true. Certainly in a, in a digital age, uh, there's never been a time when that has been more true. So, uh, that would be my definition of marketing. Very nice. I like it. Yeah. I yeah. Like finding, it. finding, finding the right people and then fitting the right product would be a, a simple way to put that. Yeah, you know, and this is very interesting because it's a lot of what uh, what Joe and I've been talking about on the on the first several episodes of of I Love Marketing is talking about you know finding the um, the need that your audience has, getting understanding it more than they do. We we've been talking about the Robert Collier letter book, and he he phrases it that you want to enter a conversation that's already going on in your prospect's mind, and that's kind of what you're just saying, right? Understanding what people want and being able to match either your service or somebody else's service to them. Yeah, and understanding what people need also. And mm -hmm. I, I think there's often a big difference between what people want and what people need. And mm -hmm. I'll give you a very uh, very clear example of that related to the 4-Hour Body. Uh, I observed very early on that in terms of behavioral change, getting people to make substantial changes in diets, exercise, medication, whatever it might be, that they did not respond to health. It was too long-term, it was too far off, it was too nebulous. So I appealed instead to vanity and performance, uh, oftentimes looking at sex, etc. And to optimize something like sex, it would naturally lead to take this blood test to identify deficiencies of these various types. And in the process, the side effect was health. So I gave them what they needed in terms of health improvement, but I did it via what they wanted, and that's what I sold them, which was the appearance and performance. Uh, so I think that you need to understand both of those two things, and they're sometimes overlapping and sometimes completely non-overlapping. 
<laughs> well, if you well, had my favorite, my uh, favorite banner of the year was "Eat like Santa, look like Jesus." <laughs> right, that was the top performer of the banners that we <laughs> that we tested. Brilliant, though that sums it right up. <laughs> well, hey, you know, let, let me let me ask you about that though, because um, first off, a couple things uh, based on what you said. Uh, I love to always think of the term, you know, uh, sell people what they want, give them what they need. Uh, and yep. a lot of times, you know, it's one of the, I, I guess, in a lot of ways, the Flintstone vitamin, probably not maybe the best vitamin in the world, but the concept of make it taste sweet so that kids will eat it, uh, you know, mm-hmm. give them what they want, <laughs> you know, which is something that tastes good, but, you know, hopefully what's in it is what they need blah, blah, blah. Well, in the Uh same way with information or leading people into things, I mean, we've had to figure out how to do that. I mean, after all, I've taught, you know, carpet and upholstery cleaners how to market a service that nobody wants to buy. And (laughs) Dean, you know, does it with real estate. So um, in a lot of ways, do you believe that as it relates to, you know, health and fitness that, you know, people really, the things that they need to most are the hardest for them to, 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 to sell or to accept. And that's why, Marketing and great copy and these roundabout ways to actually get people to pay attention is, is so so important. Or, or how do you think about that? Uh, I think that I think that marketing. So the marketing piece is identifying the identifying the group. Uh, I think that the second phase is then identifying the need and the want. Then the third the third phase is then crafting the message uh, to match those uh those those three effectively and the crafting of the message i consider the selling portion uh to differentiate it from the marketing but equally important skills of course it does you no good to know exactly what someone needs and then to fumble over your words and never get anywhere when it comes time to to verbalize it uh i think that good good selling good copywriting let's say deconstructs a problem effectively. So to be very to be a very good copywriter, you have to understand behavioral psychology. What that means is if someone says, I want to be successful, that is a terrible goal. It is it is undefined. There's no timeline. Uh, there is no clear next step. How will you know when that has been realized? You won't because it's so poorly defined. And in the copywriter's head, uh, they will use questions or very well-defined characteristics, prerequisites, perhaps, uh, of success in the copy itself to then sell whatever product or service will provide what that person needs. Uh, I mean, there's certainly unethical marketers who will sell crap that doesn't do anything for anybody, but assuming that we're, we're dealing with ethical people. Um, so I think that really understanding what motivates people and uh, what results in, in change and action is understanding human nature, behavioral psychology, and that you need to uh, translate that to the written word or whatever medium you choose. Yeah, you know, let me let me uh, first off, great, and I want to I want to ask you about you just said ethical marketing because I I just want to get your perspective. This may seem like an aside, but I think it's a really important thing. Um, mm-hmm. Like, how would you define you know ethical marketing versus unethical? And let me like set this up as an example. Whenever you become very famous and you really have contrarian thoughts, or you just put any sort of how-to information out into the world, you're clearly going to attract, uh, I think, a lot of, you know, either envious, jealous, crazy people that start attacking you. And you've got this gigantic new book called The 4-Hour Body. I mean, it's over 500 pages. It's for the price point. 
I can't imagine where anyone could compile that level of information, even if they don't agree with everything in it. I mean, it's a hell of a deal. I mean, you got this, you know, it, it, it's some of the best money someone could ever spend on some of the most cutting edge information on, you know, whatever, vanity, uh, performance, exercise, health, fitness, orgasm, you name it. And you'll still have people that'll be like, oh, all he's trying to do is, you know, sell a book. Uh, you know, he's just a marketer. Right, right. And, I mean, what, what, what is, how do you, how do you respond to that when you read those sorts of things? Uh, I, to those, I don't respond. Uh, if someone has a legitimate correction or criticism, meaning that, from my perspective, people can dislike you, uh, and they will, regardless of <laughs> what you do, <laughs> if you have enough exposure, uh, but they shouldn't misunderstand you. So your message should be clear, and it should be honest, and... That's that's perfectly fine. If someone misunderstands me, however, if they say, hey, you said this, but then later in the book you said this, and the two seem to conflict, that I need to address, and I will address. Mm-hmm. But for the people who, who who start their Amazon their one star Amazon review with I haven't read the book but I, I don't spend oh, yeah, exactly. too, I, I don't spend too much time worrying about those people. Uh, coming back to the original question of what's ethical and what isn't, uh, I think that ethical is identifying uh, rather than manufacturing a need and then providing a solution as opposed to an expensive product that generates revenue solely for the marketer. And uh, there's an anecdote that I think illustrates what would be unethical. And this is an anecdote uh, related to a very famous infomercial person. All of you would know the name. I'm not going to give his name. But uh, he told a story in a pitch meeting at one point for a new product. And he said, uh, it, was a, it was a long story about how this can of tuna fish was sold from one person to, uh, to the next for, for $1. And this story started to develop about this tuna fish and how amazing it was and how rare it was and how the other cans had been sold. And then it was sold for $5 and then 20 and all the way up until it was $500 a can. And finally, somebody says to, uh, to himself, my God, I need to eat this tuna fish. It must be amazing. And he opens it and it com- it's completely spoiled and rotten. And the moral of the story from the standpoint of this infomercial, uh, infomercial, uh, mark there was the tuna fish isn't for eating, it's for selling. Mm. <laughs> and, totally. and, uh, I, and sadly, there are a lot of unethical marketers out there. And there are a lot of unethical people. It's not the domain of marketers alone, certainly. Uh, but I, and, uh, I, I think that identifying a legitimate need and satisfying that need with a product that delivers as promised is 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 ethical, and, and anything that deviates uh, far from that, or even uh, even only a few degrees from that, is unethical. Yeah, totally. And you know, my thoughts on it too, because I have to throw in my two cents on this. Is whenever you know, if you're in the information education how to sort of business, uh, I think as long as what you're putting out into the world gives people a at a bare minimum, a reasonable to an absolute, you know, guaranteed, uh, you know, possibility of success if they follow your advice, use your product, use your service, uh, then, you know, you, you're really, you're operating in an ethical manner. Uh, yep. and, and, and that's kind of where, you know, because a lot of the how to, for instance, with carpet cleaners as an example, this, this may sound weird, but I think it applies to every part of business. 
Um, you know, if, if, a, if, a, if I sell a, a marketing course to a carpet and upholstery cleaner, you know, be it a seminar, DVDs, you know, online, whatever, and just templates here, use this sales letter, use this uh, offer, and they don't use it, they'll be like, well, you know, this marketing stuff doesn't work. But these same sort of individuals would not go to their, you know, Ford or Chevy dealer and say, I bought a, you know, a van to carry my carpet cleaning equipment around and I don't have any business and it's your guys' fault. I mean, they don't blame like the equipment manufacturer, but they always blame the how-to person. You know, and it's kind of like, well, you know, I join a gym, I go into the gym, I look at the equipment, I never lift the weights, but, you know, gyms don't work. I mean, they just don't work, but it, uh, I see a lot of information of purchasers tending to have this opinion of the efficacy of something when they haven't even tried it. And that's, that's the part that always frustrates those of us that are in the advice giving business. You know, it's, it's oh, sure. Sort of uh, and I, yeah, I think, I mean, this is, it's similar almost to acting as a physician. I mean, you can prescribe medication, but if they don't take the pills and then they call you back and say <laughs> that the prescription didn't work, it wasn't an issue with the prescription. It was an issue with following the prescription, uh, which uh, just to, to perhaps uh, point out another perspective on that, uh, which is why I think it's extremely important for people who deliver any type of how-to content uh, to realize that, the, the, the perfect program, the perfect solution is the best solution that someone that will have the highest compliance rate. Mm-hmm. And for that reason, it's, it's exceptionally important for people to, uh, I, I believe, to test their prescriptions on as large a data set of people as possible. That could only be 10. It would preferably be 100 or 1,000 or what have you, uh, to ensure that the abandonment rate is as low as possible. Uh, on the other hand, just to play devil's advocate, I remember taking a writing class with a Pulitzer Prize winner and John McPhee, who's a staff writer at the New Yorker, and uh, we were and we were talking about uh, background knowledge necessary to understand a given story. So if you write a piece about, let's say, a sailing trip, you know, how much explanation do you provide for someone who has never been sailing? You go into great detail to explain what every single piece of equipment uh, does, etc., and the, the 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 question that he raised was, does it matter uh, if there are people who don't get this? And I've come to the conclusion that not always. It's, it's perfectly fine, and this is something I do in my books. I'll throw in inside jokes that only five people on the planet are going to get. <laughs> so it doesn't always matter if uh, a, a percentage of of your readers don't get a piece, provided that it's not a critical ingredient in the prescription that you're providing. Right. Right. Yeah. Well, well, also, I mean, in, in today's day and age of massive amounts of data available, thrown at people, conflicting things, I mean, I remember this overhead I used to use. And when I say overhead, literally on an overhead projector that it says, you know, get through uh, an, uh, with an offer that is so interruptive that it keeps on interrupting until action is taken. And right. because there's so much clutter that is out there, and you've, I guess one of the tools of your trade and the tools of the trade of any great marketer is words. It is copy, and you, you mentioned copywriting earlier, and I wanted to get your perspective, uh, and then I'll shut the hell up and let Dean ask some questions here, um, your perspective on, on copy, because uh, you are a... I mean, not just a, a good writer. You are a fantastic writer, and you communicate you. Yeah, very well. And, and people always talk about how great your books are and how great your blog is. 
and you're just a wordsmith, but you learned how to do it. And we talked in the very beginning of I Love Marketing, we talked about the absolute importance of, of words, of copy, be it video, be it audio, or be it written. And I wanted to have you talk about that because, you know, you are one of the, the best writers of the last decade in terms of best-selling books and communication. Well, I, I was very kind of you, first of all, to say, and uh, it's what I'd like to emphasize to anyone out there who's a, a a copywriter, an editor, an aspiring writer, or aspiring to be a better communicator for that matter, that it is a learned skill. Mm-hmm. And in my case, uh, very early on, <laughs> I read all the Dan Kennedy books. <laughs> I read the uh, the John Caples books. I read uh, scientific advertising. Uh, Claude Hopkins, if I'm not mistaken, yeah. and really made a study of wordsmithing in this particular case for the purposes of selling product, but uh, continued to train myself as a writer. And what you find is that writing practice and having someone to correct your writing and pull out the, superf- the superfluous words, the unnecessary filler, the, re- the unnecessary redundancy and repetition, etc., improves your thinking. And that words are a reflection of thinking. And if you can elicit a, a certain set of words or questions in a prospect's mind, that in a, that is as close to thought control as you will probably ever come. And uh, you, and it is your responsibility, therefore, to use it for good as opposed to evil. Because certainly, it can be used for evil. And I think that for uh, Goebbels, who is the the propaganda minister for the Nazi regime, would be a very good example of that. Exceptional wordsmith, exceptional communicator, but he used it for uh, extremely malevolent purposes. Uh, and that uh, it is exceptionally valuable, at the very least, to take a writing course. It does not need to be a copywriting course. My suggestion would be to find the best teacher you can find, regardless of genre of writing, and if possible, take a seminar or hire them uh, to correct your writing, and they will give you assignments. It doesn't matter if it's fiction. It doesn't matter if it's journalist uh, journalism or investigative journalism. Uh, to give you an example, when I was in uh, when I was doing my undergraduate uh, work in school, I took this class with John McPhee, and within the span of about four weeks, all of my grades in every other class jumped, and it was because of the more precise thinking that was produced from this writing class. It was extremely clear to see. Uh, so I, I really view few things as more important uh, than practicing writing. No matter how painful it is for you, no matter how bad you may believe yourself to be, it is, it is one of the few ways to capture thought and edit and improve your thought uh, available to anyone. Uh, so I, I'm a huge believer, in, and to that end, beyond the copywriting books, there is a book called, there are two books actually I'd recommend. Uh, one is called On Writing Well, and it's by Zinser. Uh, I think it's Z-I-N-S-S-N-E-R, something along those lines. They just, they just published a uh, 25th anniversary edition. Fantastic book on writing, and therefore thought, uh, as well as a book called Bird by Bird, which I think uh, uh, for anyone in a creative, in any type of creative endeavor, and certainly uh, I think good marketing is, is within that umbrella, uh, it, it covers a lot of the, the emotional, psychological challenges that such people go through. And Bird by Bird is written by Anne Lamott, who's a fantastic writer and has saved a number of my friends and me from 
imminent nervous breakdowns when finishing manuscripts. <laughs> I've given it to two friends, and both of their books have gone on to become New York Times bestsellers. Not to say it was responsible, but uh, their their books were very close to being abandoned, effectively, be- as was my first book, certainly, because of the the pressure and ambiguity of deadline and so forth and so on. Wow. Um, so those would be those would be two recommendations. Yeah, in the book by On Writing Well, I just pulled it up here, uh, and it is by Zinser, Z-I-N-S-S-E-R, William Zinser. Yeah, and uh, God, you gotta love technology. I just, uh, I have On Writing Well, because you recommended me to that before, but Bird by Bird, I never had, and I just ordered yeah, no, it. Heard of that. It's like, it's fascinating, though, Tim, that you're saying, um, you know, you, it, your study of of all the great marketing writers, and I, I think that really helps in um, being able to to shift somebody's mind. And I don't think it's an accident that um, I think it's James Patterson was a a copy writer before becoming a um, becoming a writer, and it, it's, he he's the guy that's written. All the like, uh, you know, bazillions of copies. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that, that's the, <laughs> the guy, magic right? maker. That was, uh... Yeah, that's yeah, he's the magic maker. And um, do you know that that's true that he was in he was a copywriter? I didn't know that story. Okay, yeah. So that... Uh, but but uh, I could provide a uh, a similar parallel, uh, which is, and perhaps some people listening to this may not realize, but I was a direct response. Uh, I was a direct. I was the CEO of a direct founder and CEO of a direct response. Uh, based company that, that sold sports nutrition products for right. uh, for quite a few years and have spent I mean millions of dollars on direct response. So yeah. uh, it started with that type of testing. And I I, I do think uh, if I could uh, there there are a few suggestions I might make in those early days. What I found very useful in many cases more useful than uh, reading the how to books on copywriting was I created what is referred to sometimes as a swipe file. Mm-hmm. And every time I bought something and it, that purchase was elicited by an advertisement, if it was print or if it were radio, if it were television, I would make a copy and put it into this swipe file, this collection of ads that, that caused me to buy and or to call for more information or to sign up as lead gen or whatever it might have been. Right. Uh, and, and then I would practice, and I wouldn't necessarily use these ads, and you certainly don't want to violate anyone's copyright, so forth and so on. I would practice mimicking these ads. And then I might mimic, let's say, three or four ads. Uh, and this is just drafts on a piece of paper for my own print advertising in this particular case. And I, I did a lot of big print, I mean, all the way up to big ads in USA Today and so forth. Uh, and then I would try to combine my favorite elements of those ads into one ad that was original to me, and I would use that. Um, so I do think finding the examples that inspire you, whether that's inspiring you to call a phone number, go to a website, place a purchase, uh, or to change your behavior, to go somewhere else. You know, what are the words that persuade you? And keep a keep a file of these things. It's it's really valuable, and it's also fun to look back <laughs> at the things that have influenced See you. What, yeah, what, what persuaded you? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, you know, I, I have to echo what you just said about the swipe file because it's one of the first things I learned early on from uh, Gary Halbert. And Gary, when he used to, you know, Gary was a, a brilliant copywriter, and uh, me and Dean both studied. Um, you know, Gary, that's what actually uh, led to 
me pretty much being in this business, what led me to Dan Kennedy, and what, which, by the way, uh, we made an announcement on the last I Love Marketing uh, podcast that Dan Kennedy, who's not spoken at one of my events in quite a few years, is actually speaking at our first ever I Love Marketing event in September, which is super cool. So, Very cool. Um, yeah, and he's he'll be a guest uh, in probably a few weeks here on I Love Marketing. But Gary said that he would have people come to him and say, "I wish I could write world class copy like you. I wish I could do it." And Gary would say, "You, you want to write? You want to be a world class copywriter? You want to write, um, you know, ads like this?" And people would be like, "Yeah, okay. Here's some ads." He, he had a swipe file. Go ahead and write these word for word until it's just in your subconscious. And he literally would, he, that he would Hand train people that way. Out. Yeah. Handwrite them out. He'd give them a sales letter. He'd give them an ad, and he'd like write it. And by writing it and modeling it and and looking at it, and so I think every serious marketer uh, or even not so serious marketer should have a swipe file. I mean, I have a huge swipe file at my office, and uh, it's been it's been worth millions uh, yeah. to me. So yeah, it it pays it pays dividends to imitate uh, and. Also, I would recommend, when possible, you know, emulate people that you would like to be like. Mm-hmm. <laughs> also, <laughs> there can be unintended consequences of modeling someone's thought process. You tend to, in some de- to some degree, become that person, so you have to be careful. Uh, it sounds weird, but it's very true. Uh, I certainly see that with employees surrounded by bosses. I mean, they take on the personalities of their leaders, and that person, that leader, doesn't need to be present. They can be through the printed page, for example. Uh, what I would say, just to provide another example, is that when I was writing the four-hour work week, I wrote several chapters, four or five, and then ended up throwing them away because I couldn't find my voice. And the way that I fixed that, so I, was, I would go from this extremely pompous, like Princetonian, ridiculous, uh, long word prose, which is horrible, uh, uh, then I'd flip to the complete opposite end of the spectrum and do Three Stooges slapstick prose, which was equally bad. I was like, oh my god, I couldn't, I could not solve the problem. I just couldn't take my personality as is and put it on the page. It didn't work. I wasn't able to do it. And the way that I got around that was by imitating writing. Uh, I felt I admired that I wanted to emulate on some level. That included uh, Neil Strauss <laughs> at the time, so portions of the game, uh, and he's since become a very good friend. I included uh, some travel writers, Pete Goyer and a few others, Rolf Potts, and I practiced writing as close as I could to their voice. And what I found is that that, that took my mind off of my own preoccupation, number one, but it also allowed me to find a certain degree of balance, uh, meaning equilibrium and confidence in the flow of my writing. So I was less concerned about getting stuck with writer's block, I was just copying someone. So how intimidating is that? Uh, it, it wasn't. And as a result, I was able to jump that hurdle and ultimately find my own voice, uh, which was really a dis- a, just a, a rediscovering of my own voice and feeling comfortable using that voice. Uh, and then the book came from there. Uh, so I, I hit the same problem and used my own version of a swipe file in the form of the books that had most influenced my thought process and my writing style right. uh, to get me out of that rut. Yeah, I like it. I like it. I mean, there's a huge lesson, and I hope everyone really picked up on the importance of that and just not like, oh, that sounds like a good idea, because a lot of people will hear something like that. But truly, um, most uh, all the great copywriters and great marketers, they learn from the giants. They, you know, and you go out and you oh, look yeah. at the, And I've never considered junk mail, you know, um, ever junk mail before the Internet was ever created. My, my biggest marketing lessons came from promotions I would get 
all the time because they wouldn't keep sending it to you if someone wasn't giving them money because that stuff right. costs money to put in the mail and people think of junk mail as junk when in some cases it could be the best marketing lesson delivered to your doorstep for free uh, that you can look at and say, huh, what's going on here? What are they saying? Why are people responding? That sort of thing. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I used to buy products off of television, radio, uh, just to see how they would follow up, uh, just to see how they shipped to see which fulfillment centers they came from, <laughs> to call back and see where I was routed to, uh, to cancel and see if there was a cross-sell or an upsell. I mean, <laughs> that was the best education I could Isn't have ever funny? purchased. I remember we used to do that same thing, you know, respond to all the direct response things that offered free reports or offered, you know, free books or free anything like lead generation to see how people followed up with it, you know? Yeah. It, oh, it really, it really, it really pissed me off, Dean, because you were calling my office every week. Yeah, under a every fake week. <laughs> Back before the internet, and I'd have to spend all this postage just to send you my promotions <laughs> for you to blatantly rip off. It was really uncool. <laughs> just a search replace and put Dean instead of Joe. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Brilliant. What, what, a, what, a, what a fantastic vault of free R and D. What I was going to say also is that I haven't stopped doing that. Uh, in, in so much as I have, I have a repository of copy that I like, website design that I like. Uh, I happen to use Evernote to clip all of it off the web so I can look at it offline as well. Uh, photographs of packaging. I also use Evernote to capture that. And full disclosure, I'm an advisor, but I used the product before I ever became an advisor. Uh, and that's now my swipe file. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's just a hell of a lot easier to organize than a big three ring binder. Right. Yep. I, I like it. Uh, Dean, talk about, I'd love to ask, you know, and I'd like to get your perspective on this. Dean created in the real estate industry originally this model, which applies to any business, called before, during, and after. What to do before the sale, what to do during the sale, what to do after the sale. And I'd love to have you talk about um, your book. I mean, you know, you got two gigantic bestsellers, and there's a lot of people in the fitness world that really you know, they're just pissed because they think they have the greatest thing in the world. And they're like, you know, Tim Ferriss, you know, he's got this number one selling book. And, you know, most people think it's amazing. Um, and you also have a lot of people that are just kicking themselves because they can't figure out what the hell you're doing. So there's yeah. stuff that you did before you launch a book, what you do during and what you do after. And I, I'd like to get your, your perspective on it. And with full disclosure, Dean came up with that model. So I want to give him credit because it's a great, simple way of looking at uh, the stages of, a, of the business. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would say there are a few things. Uh, I don't, it's very common for people moving into any new area, whether that's real estate, whether that's writing, whether that's fitness and exercise, et cetera, they view their qualifications, background, lack of qualifications, uh, predisposition, resume, whatever it might be, as a weakness. And I, I do think that not only can you position your weaknesses as strengths, but that in many cases, your weaknesses are strengths. It's not a misrepresentation. So in my case, I knew that I wouldn't be able to, and I never wanted to, I never had the desire, I never thought it was necessary to compete with the other fitness and diet books out there. I wanted this book to be so completely different that it wouldn't even be compared to these other books. And to a large extent, I think it's that's been accomplished extremely well. Uh, and to give you an example, leading into the before. So in the before, I would view the before as the introduction to the book. 
let's just look at it that way. Okay. <laughs> In the introduction of the book, I say very clearly, I'm not an MD, I'm not a PhD, but there, there, are, there are a few ways you should look at that lack of qualification. Number one is I don't have an academic career nor a product line to protect. I do not have any set fixed opinion to, to sell to you. Uh, and at the same time, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a meticulous data cruncher with access, due to the first book, to many of the, the best doctors, scientists, athletes, coaches in the world. So I have better data, period. <laughs> and ultimately, if anyone tells you you should do three reps of 12 or eat X number of grams of bananas or protein or whatever it might be, you need to ask them why that's the case. And in most, in, in, in most answers, they will not have good, good evidence. Mm-hmm. So I was able to uh, point out my, my differences and be very frank about uh, some of my real weaknesses, perhaps. So I, I stated very clearly up front, and I do think that this is extremely powerful in a world where people can fact-check everything you say within milliseconds on Google. Yeah. As I said, I'm not going to get everything right. Uh, I, I'm exceptionally confident in the how-to, but the why-to, the mechanisms, etc., no doubt, just as we laughed at people, uh, people who made conclusions 50 years ago in, in various areas of science, I will make mistakes, and uh, I'll join in the laugh with you, and then I will fix these errors and improve the book with your feedback. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so I think that the framing is very, very important. <clears throat> in terms of during the sale, uh, if we want to talk, we, uh, I, I, I think the marketing, so we talked about marketing, and the way I defined it, uh, my most valuable readers, let's just call them my customers, are not the people who, who read one-third of the book and then put it down. For someone to really endorse a book, uh, it's the, the requisite steps are they read the book, and this is a 600-page book. They don't have to read it all, certainly, uh, but they need to get through the entire thing, take action, show some type of result, and then tell people about it. That's actually asking a lot of someone. Right. It's, really, it's really a lot to ask. And to get people through that meat of the book, I also broke it down into very concrete, small steps. And I reiterated those steps multiple times uh, to make it as low resistance as possible. Um, but I would say from a, from a launch standpoint, uh, I really focused on relationships over transactions. And that's very cliched. And a lot of people say it without meaning it. But if you look at the allies I had for this particular launch. Uh, I mean, Joe, how long have we known each other? Oh, uh, God, probably. Four, four, four or five years? Yeah, yeah. And uh, if you look at the friends that I made in the process of learning about publishing and book launches and so forth for the four-hour work week, I'm still friends with those people. <laughs> and, uh, and I think there's a lesson to be drawn from that, which is, it's one thing to seek out the people who can most help you. And it's quite, it's quite something different to find the people who are the best at what they do with whom you also share a lot of common DNA. Right. Because the people in the latter category are going to be fun to spend time with. You will have a very high likelihood of becoming uh, long-term or lifelong friends with these people. And uh, assuming that you also meet their ante and and try to be the best that you can do and don't produce bullshit and then try to force it upon them. 
uh, they will be willing to help if it makes sense. And it's not, I scratch your back, you scratch mine. It's if it makes sense. And this comes back to the marketing. Uh, so I'll give you an example. Uh, I, I did quite a lot with Gizmodo, which is an enormous, enormous tech blog for the launch of the 4-Hour Body. At first glance, the 4-Hour Body has nothing to do with Gizmodo at all. Right. Uh, in reality, when I was writing the book, I thought to myself, what could I do that would be awesome for Brian, the, the editor at Gizmodo, to introduce to his readers? And it wasn't the sole determining factor in my content, but I said, all right, here are three or four things I could do. I'm equally excited about all of them. Which one would be awesome for him to unveil to his readers? And so I looked at implanting a continuous glucose monitor into my side to look at my blood sugar 24-7. That's perfect for his audience. And I thought about it extremely early on. And then when I spoke to uh, Brian, and this is true for everybody I spoke to, I said, look, uh, I think this could be really cool for your audience, but absolutely no pressure at all. If you say no, I won't take it personally, and believe me, that's the case. Um, let me know what you think. And if there's anything that I can customize, if there's anything else I could provide, let me know. But if it's not a fit, like I won't take it personally. Uh, and it, that, that was the vantage point from which I tried to set things up. But these are all now good friends of mine. They happen to be extremely good at what they do. Um, so that was a bit of a rambling answer. But I think that the setup is not just for a launch. It's for a very good relationship yeah. uh, with all of the, the constituent parts that constitute a good relationship. Uh, in any case, I think, that, uh, I think that if people spent more time going sort of an, an inch wide and five miles deep with 10 people, they would get much further in life and have a, have a more pleasing life uh, than trying to accumulate the largest Rolodex possible so they can spam everybody one week before they have something drop, <laughs> which is what almost well, everybody does. Know, and that's the perfect transition into the the after uh, yeah. unit of, of this, which would be the relationship that you build with, with the audience that you end up yep. developing because of this. Yeah. And so I'd really like to hear your perspective on because um, we, we kind of introduced when we were talking to you earlier about the uh, we had Gary Vaynerchuk on last mm-hmm. week and we, we were talking about how uh, he's got a, a very hard to model um, approach to communicating with with people with a, you know a, a daily video with his his you know. 14 hour a day tweeting and, yep. and the one to one kind of relationship with that. And you've kind of built, um, a great relationship with your audience, but not on that frequent of a basis. And I think I right. know that you made a, a conscious choice to, um, to not have a blog that, you know, posted five times a day and to have a yep. blog that posted once or twice a week. And maybe you yep. can share a little bit about your perspective on that. Uh, absolutely. So there, it was a very conscious decision. Uh, the first was, and, and this was not completely accidental. Uh, I knew that if I wrote a book called The Four Hour Work Week, <laughs> yeah. that, uh, it, it was it was an insurance plan of sorts against slipping back into my old behaviors. Uh, so right off the bat, if people are a fan of the philosophies and the writing, uh, they should insist on some level that I follow my own advice. 
so I think that I, I bought myself a certain level of permission uh, by doing that first and foremost. Secondly, I think it's very helpful for people to, at times, take a step back and realize that uh, that Mark Twain was wiser than many would give him credit for. He said that, uh, I'm paraphrasing, but whenever you find your si- yourself on the side of the majority, it's time to pause and reflect. <laughs> and I think that the most common or most highly recognized accepted path to doing just about anything is typically neither the most effective nor the most efficient. Uh, and to look for the outliers. So in, in terms of frequent communication, I, I haven't for uh, some time seen Steve Jobs uh, asking for feedback on on his Facebook fan page or uh, at replying to people on Twitter or right. doing any of these things. It's it's not necessary for all people, and you need to do a very have a very clear inventory of your strengths and weaknesses and decide where that tool fits into your toolbox, if at all. But it's it's like a crayon versus watercolor versus marker versus something else. These are tools. In my particular case, what I promise my readers is that I will never give them half-assed material. I will never do a mediocre job of creating the best possible content and doing the most in-depth research that I can. That is my promise to my readers. I don't promise that I'm going to babysit them. That's the last thing I want. And I've said that before. I, in fact, I've said, I do not want to be your guru because that implies that you're dependent on me for answers. And I am training you to be dependent on nothing but yourself. Uh, therefore, think for yourself. <laughs> and and uh, I, I give tough love in that respect. Uh, I mean, I don't pat people on the head and say, everything's going to be all right if they're not following the rules. And uh, some people get upset about that. But ultimately, uh, I think that the, the vast majority, and again, it doesn't matter how many people don't get it. It matters how many people do get it. So if you hit 90% of your audience, even if you whittle that down to the most loyal 1,000, you'll never have to worry about finances ever again. So stick to your principles. Um, as an example, I said, if you can't provide me with two days of, of meal plans, exact meal plans, you can't show me your blood work, and you haven't done the diet for four weeks exactly as described, do not put a post here saying, what am I doing wrong? I don't understand. The diet doesn't work. Because you say you're doing it to a T, but you're eating bananas and doing all sorts of other stuff that has no place on the diet. So, here's the guideline. If you have to ask, don't eat it. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and I do that. I do that. I'll just, I, I, and, uh, some people laugh. Some people get upset. The vast majority are like, okay, good point. Fair enough. Right. And, uh, to my readers, I do interact with my readers, but I'm, I also set expectations. And I think this is where, people get very confused about what they should or shouldn't do as follow-up, whether it's with a product or with anything else, mm-hmm. content, blog, etc. Is I set the expectations very clearly that when I reply, I will take it seriously and I will reply. But don't expect me to reply all the time, partially because I've built a community here of, uh, of intelligent people who can provide as much, if not more, valuable feedback than I can. Uh, and so far that's worked. It's worked very well. I have the, uh, according to a couple of different analyses, I have the highest, uh, comment quality score of any tech blog out there, that's fantastic. which I'm very, very proud of. Yes. And, uh, I don't, uh, uh, this is very closely related. I allow people to 
to criticize. I allow people to attack me in some cases if there's actually a, a lesson to be taken from it. And that lesson may just be my other readers seeing how I respond to the attack. Right. Uh, but I do not allow readers to attack one another. Criticism's fine. Attacks are not. And uh, that is uh, so that is because of the, the broken window theory, which was uh, discussed widely when New York really went on, uh, went through many of its improvements, particularly around Times Square and in the subway systems. Uh, they 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 were trying to address violent crime, and they started with repairing broken windows and removing graffiti. And surprise, surprise, actually decreased violent crime. The theory being that if you allow one broken window to remain broken, people assume that it's on some level permitted, more broken windows come about, then the graffiti, then the petty crime, then the robberies, then the rapes, then the murders. And uh, in blog environments and social environments, I think that's also very true. Uh, so if I allow people to attack one another, it will it will spiral out of control very quickly and turn into an exceptionally unhospitable place. Right. Um, now, in terms of follow-up uh, and setting expectations, I just want to reiterate that point, because whether you're managing board meetings, I met with uh, about 25 top CEOs today, and we were in a session talking about board meetings and board members and how to how to manage that process, et cetera. And one of the key takeaways was you need to have very clear set expectations, very, very clear, so that if you have a board meeting with investors, let's say, uh, once every quarter, you don't drop some bomb on their lap as a surprise on the day of the board meeting. So you might provide them with uh, weekly or monthly metrics. You might meet with each one of those people for for breakfast individually before you go to the board meeting. Similarly with the blog, if I put up a post and I say, guys, I'm detaching, I'm disappearing for four weeks, I'm not going to be on telephone, on uh, computer, or on a calendar, have an awesome time while I'm gone, I'll see you when I get back, mm-hmm. that automatically ensures against the vast majority of complaints and issues that might come up if I suddenly just went into radio science without having said that. Right. Uh, so I think that... Uh, on the, in the blogosphere, certainly, which is my main habitat, uh, it's exceptionally important to do that. Mm-hmm. Hey, well, you know, can I, can I ask you something, Tim, because I'm not 100% sure on your blog. Me and Dean were just talking about this. I was just going to say, uh, we were just talking yeah, about this. Uh, uh, we, we, we actually did a follow-up podcast, which uh, was actually the last episode, which was kind of our thoughts on the Gary Vaynerchuk uh, interview we did with him. And a lot of it, we addressed comments that people had made anonymously. Do you allow anonymous comments, or does everyone have to identify themselves? We actually only had one, the one person who was anonymous. And And that's where the most, maybe, per se, negativity came from. Right, yeah. But we still allowed it to be posted up there, you know, because... Yeah, I I allow anyone to submit a comment with with an email address, and... That doesn't prevent all spam, certainly. It doesn't prevent all anonymous uh, venom from being uh, spewed at people. But uh, it goes into moderation. Uh, so mm-hmm. I do have comment moderation. Uh, and that's important to me for maintaining the integrity and helpfulness uh, and general uh, ambiance of the comment section of my blog. I view it as my living room. And if, if some idiot comes to my house for a dinner party and gets ludicrously drunk and starts kicking tables off my 
counter, you know, the guy's going to go <laughs> and he's right. going to be, he's not going to be invited back. Uh, you know, like you would allow them to kick the bananas off because it seems you have a very hurtful opinion about bananas. <laughs> hurtful. Yes. Yeah. Hurtful yeah I, I do. You know, <laughs> I was young. I needed the money. I don't want to talk about bananas, <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but uh, yes, bananas, you can, you can kick the bananas outside of my house. Right. Uh, and any, but, and the other thing is, uh, so I don't invite negativity into my life unnecessarily. There's plenty of that in the world already. Uh, so that's, that's my general policy. Gotcha. Hey, do, do you have any thoughts on like, uh, in, in this is, you know, more so for myself, but also I think our listeners are interested in it because we talk about this stuff. You know, you take like Seth Godin who has, you know, you introduced me to Matt Mullenweg, the, uh, you know, founder uh-huh. of, uh, of WordPress. Great guy. And, uh, mm-hmm. you know, I, I, he spoke at one of my events and, and I asked him about Seth Godin. He's like, well, Seth doesn't use WordPress, but he has one of the biggest blogs, you know, out there. And I love his blog. And yep. he doesn't allow comments on it, and right. you do. Mm-hmm. Do you have a, mm-hmm. pros and cons from your perspective? Uh, pros and cons. Let me give you the pros first, because someone might ask, well, why the hell do you allow comments? Uh, because, quite frankly, I don't know what my traffic would look like without comments. might be higher. Who knows? Maybe it would force people to comment on it elsewhere. Uh, there's that possibility. Uh, I have spent the amount of time that I have uh, interacting with my readers, cultivating my readers, banning the idiots, because I have learned more through my readers, and most of them uh, contact me through the blog, and made more fascinating connections and had more amazing experiences through my readers uh, than I could possibly ever deliver to my readers. So it's it, it's uh, it's something that that it gives me tremendous enjoyment. Uh, that, that is the reason I, I provide comments among other reasons. Uh, they also teach one another and there, there are a host of other benefits on the con side. Uh, you do need to learn, uh, to brush off very harsh attacks. And that is going to happen. It doesn't, it doesn't matter whether you're blogging for, for Greenpeace or save the whales or, uh, any number of things, uh, you will get extremely hateful comments and you need to, to learn to brush that aside or you need to have somebody approve comments for you uh, and filter out the hatred, which is going to be directed at you personally, typically. And then you can go into the blog and respond to those people in kind. So for I, I handled moderation personally for years and uh, only up until... About a month and a half ago, did I experiment with having someone else moderate the comments? And uh, I still see the comments that are moderated, but I don't see the negative comments or the spam, et cetera, that, uh, that come in. I shouldn't say negative. There are plenty of negative comments that we approve, but if they're hateful or spiteful or, or are completely unproductive, then they don't make it in. Uh, and uh, it, it hasn't really... It affected my my mental state one way or another. When I was when I was moderating my blogs, for those people who are using WordPress, I'll give just a, a recommendation because I can fly through moderating comments. I'm very very fast at it. Uh, and in in WordPress, I mean, I could go through several hundred comments in 20 minutes um, or like 30 minutes, I'd say. Uh, and the way that you do that is you would select for trackbacks or pingbacks. Um, and uh, do a quick scan to see if there are any traffic sources that are of interest. Uh, then you can delete all of those because they're just confusing, quite frankly, to people in the comments section and don't 
add much value. Uh, then I would go to the pending category and scan through again. Uh, and uh, you can establish a blacklist for words like fuck, asshole, etc., which will immediately put things either into spam or into moderation. Uh, and then you scan through and you look for certain things. Uh, I set my comment rules, so I have a, a, a blurb at the at the bottom of each post above the comments that says, all right, here are the comment rules. Don't put your business name in your personal name field. Not allowed. Too spammy. Number two, don't put your URL in the text box itself. Like, put it in the URL field. And so I can scan very quickly and see if anyone violates those things and they get removed immediately. Right. Uh, or I might give them a warning, but at this point in my life, uh, life's too short, so I usually just delete them. Um, and uh, those would be a few guidelines also for moderating. But uh, I find that the interaction with my readers is my reward for spending three years on each of my books. Honestly. I mean, yeah. it's, uh, it's so, it's so awesome to me. I'll give you an example. Uh, I put up a, a, a post on learning how to swim, which then later became with some modification and a couple of additions, a chapter in the four hour body. I put this up during the Olympics when Michael Phelps was competing. And in the, in the first 50 comments or so, maybe the first hundred, there was a comment from a silver medalist, uh, Olympic silver medalist, <laughs> with suggestions for training. Then there was a comment from the national team uh, coach, swimming coach, with suggestions, <laughs> and so forth and so on. I mean, it's just how can you possibly get that any other way? I, yeah, I can't imagine how. Out. Yeah, you would have missed yeah. out on that if you didn't have the ability for comments. I yeah, agree. Exactly. I think there's something exactly. to that. Well, I, you know, I would. That's exactly what I'm trying to say. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's kind of where I, that's kind of where I was going with it. Uh, well, yeah, well, let, let me let, let me ask you then, because we, we we told our listeners that we would get your perspective on the uh, Gary Vaynerchuk sort of method of social media and yep. being out there all the time. And you know, there's so much technology, there's so many tools, there's so many Facebooks and Twitters and 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 just places where you can connect, LinkedIn's, you know, all that sort of stuff. And you know, you, you, there's only so many hours in the day, and uh, yeah. you, you know, I know you're a Peter Drucker fan, and there, there was a quote that Ooh. I mentioned on the last one. One of my favorite ones is "There's no, from Peter Drucker. There's nothing more useless than doing really well that which need not be done at all. Oh yeah, and, fantastic. And people can be, you know, they can become an expert in a lot of things, but at the end of the day, does it lead to something? So you have literally been, become one of the top, you know, identifiers of, you know work that matters, having impact, the, you know, Pareto principle. I mean, what would you advise to our listeners about how to stay on the cutting edge and, 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 and use technology and not have it use you as it relates to marketing? Sure. I would say that uh, effective use of any of these tools relies on extremely non-cutting edge skills. <laughs> So you need to learn how to communicate with the written word or with the spoken word. And the best way to improve the spoken word is through the written word. Uh, and buying a, buying a shinier car when you don't know how to drive is not going to help you. So I would suggest a few things. Number one, Gary loves the interaction that he has with his followers, for example, on Twitter. Uh, I enjoy it but not as much as he does. So he'll do that 14 hours a day and, and interact in these various ways. He really lives and breathes and loves that. So I don't find fault with it. Uh, if, you're, if you're enjoying what you do more than anything else you could be doing, 
in many cases, you're not wasting time. It may not be productive in the literalist, you know, Calvinist sense of the word, uh, but life is intended to be, and I think life exists to be enjoyed. So, among other things. Uh, from a practical, tactical standpoint, what I would say is choose one tool and get very, very good at using that tool. In my, and, and then that becomes the heartbeat and you direct everything else back to that heartbeat. In my case, it's my blog. That is the, that is the core nexus of my existence online. And I, I do interact on Twitter. I do interact on Facebook. Uh, it's typically sharing something that's of value, some type of link or stat, uh, probably 80% useful links or polling and questions to get answers, and maybe 20% just uh, a, a day in the life or a, a glance at the life of Tim Ferriss because people are interested in that. Uh, and it all directs back to the blog. For other people, uh, like a top YouTuber, for example, their home base is YouTube. And they'll have a blog, but the purpose of the blog is to feed people back to YouTube. They'll have a Twitter account, but the purpose of that Twitter account, uh, at least on some level, is to drive people back to that YouTube page. So become very good at using one of those tools. Become expert. Become one of the best in the world if you can. And that, that might mean just within your niche. That's fine. And then you can expand your sphere. But if you're mediocre at all of them, you could add a hundred more tools. You could watch every article on TechCrunch and adopt to create a new account at every single new service, and it would not have any real lasting impact of any sort. I think that's great. And, you know, it ties in with what – because Gary would say it's about what your your DNA is. You know, like Gary's DNA yeah. is wired to be engaging in dialogue with people on – on in any way possible in person yeah. on Twitter on Facebook on you know in any way possible and uh, so it, it, for some people who see that it, you can't force yourself to be that just because somebody else is you know it comes oh absolutely naturally to him oh yeah absolutely I mean it's just like uh, executive management styles so you look at Steve Jobs he's not like uh, if you look at Steve Jobs he's not Bill Gates you look at Bill Gates he's certainly not uh, Richard Branson. I mean, they, they have different styles. They like different things and they have different strengths. Uh, and it makes no sense to, uh, mimic to a handicap someone you are not. Uh, it makes sense to, in some cases, practice behaving as someone might, but then you need to assess how effective you're being and how much you enjoy it. Uh, and that's going to be very, very individual. Uh, yeah, totally. You know, Tim, I, I, we've only got a few minutes left here, and, um, you know, all of us have one thing in common. Um, we're all very, very handsome fellows. No, uh, what I was going to say is that the, the, the one thing we have in common is that we're all, you know, we're all out there wanting to teach and share and educate people, and we're very much the same ourselves. We all like learning really cool things and useful things. And so with I Love Marketing, you know, what we're wanting to do is uh, me and Dean uh, believe that, you know, marketers are saviors when used in the right way. Nothing happens without marketing, and it brings to the world many, many valuable things. You're a teacher, uh, you're a writer, and you're also really, really interested in education and learning. I know you do a tremendous amount of stuff in that space, and you, you support what you consider the cutting-edge organizations that are helping 
children um, and, and what are your thoughts on learning and your thoughts on, you know, because everyone listening wants to learn in this particular case that I love marketing. They want to learn about marketing. And mm-hmm. you've really studied uh, a lot about how to effectively learn and develop mm-hmm. skills. And I wanted to get your perspective on how all of our listeners just effective um, methods, strategies, techniques, mindsets when it comes to learning uh, a, mm-hmm. a skill. Yep. I would suggest a few things. Uh, the first is, uh, and these are very, on some level, subjective perspectives. I mean, I, I have my own approach to learning, but I have found it to be rather re- replicable. And so far, uh, my, uh, many of my readers have tried to model it. And certainly I've borrowed from many, many people like Michelle Thomas and others. Uh, so uh, I'm standing on the shoulders of giants as well. But a few thoughts related to learning. Uh, the first is uh, that, that you, you can learn for a purpose. You can learn for enjoyment. And uh, you should strive, I think, to enjoy the learning process, even if there's no lasting benefit. And I know that sounds very odd, but that's how you will do, that's how you will enable yourself to practice learning the skill of skill acquisition. To give you a perfect example, I have spent time in Greece. I've spent time in Turkey. Uh, both times with Matt Mullenweg, although that sounds very romantic. And, uh, <laughs> I spent a lot of time studying and practicing Greek and Turkish in both of those places. Do I remember even a hundred words of either language? Absolutely not. Uh, but I had a fantastic time while I was in country playing around with those languages and getting people to open up and making an ass of myself. And the joy of learning, I think learning without enjoyment is, is very, uh, hollow in, in certain respects. Uh, now, in terms of the actual process of learning or acquiring a new skill, uh, the, the first thing I would say, you, you need a, just like anything else, I would suggest having a deadline and a very specific goal. Uh, so I was studying Arabic recently, and I'll still continue to study Arabic. And the objective at the time, I wasn't able to do this because I, I had to uh, go to the Middle East for only one week as opposed to four but was to come back and interview a friend of mine in Arabic on my blog. Mm. Uh, and so that gave me, that gave me a very specific objective. I could write out the questions that I wanted to ask in Ar- in English. And then I knew exactly what I had to be able to pronounce properly in Arabic. And it gave me a roadmap for accomplishing that. Uh, secondly is recognizing that with, with any skill, it's often uh, what you learn. That's most important, not how you learn it. Uh, so in language learning, as an example, there's a real obsession with methods. Should I use Rosetta Stone? Should I use uh, Berlitz? Uh, I was a curriculum designer for Berlitz for a while, as a side note, uh, in Japanese and English. Should I use uh, Pimsleur method? Should I use this other method? Uh, whereas the better question to ask is, what are the thousand highest frequency words that I should learn to be functionally fluent in the shortest period of time possible? Uh, and once you have the material identified, the method is of, of great secondary importance. Mm-hmm. So identifying, applying the 80-20 principle to, to language, whether that's grammar or uh, vocabulary. And I'll give you an example. There are ways to cheat, not in an unethical way, but in a very practical way. So if you want to learn a language like Spanish, for example, you should learn the verbs uh, to, to want, to need, uh, to like, to dislike. 
And once you learn those, rather than having to conjugate a hundred different verbs, you can just say, I need to eat. I <laughs> want to this. Right. Uh, and, and you can just tag the infinitive on the end. So there are ways to cheat. Um, the, the, other, the other point I would make is that you want to look for anomalies. So with any type of skill, let's say it's uh, long-distance uh, endurance running, so ultra, ultra marathons, I would seek out the best in the world or, which is easier, seek out someone who was at the best in the world five years ago, something like that, so they're no longer in the limelight, and, and, and seek out any type of training methodologies online that they've written about or, or had described through other journalists. Uh, develop then a list of questions. For example, uh, do you still train using this particular protocol? Uh, have you trained anyone in the last few years? I'm not asking you to train me, but if you have trained people in the last few years, you know, how has your training approach changed? Um, and then ask them, have you trained anyone who doesn't look like a runner? You know, have you trained someone who's uh, 5'10", 230 pounds? Um, if so, how did you train that person differently? And I try to find a coach who can take people who are who are not genetically or otherwise predisposed to a specific skill and make them world class or very very good. Uh, and then I try to figure out the the replicability of their method, and then I test it. Then I test it on myself. And this this approach, I think, is very effective for me at least because. I'm, a, I'm playing detective, number one. I'm not just sitting down and memorizing flashcards, although that might be part of it. I'm trying to find a better mousetrap. I'm trying to find a better way. And I think that that curiosity bleeds over into better retention, better recall, uh, more uh, cues from a, from a mental standpoint for, uh, for all sorts of different mental operations and so forth. Um, so I could go on and on for, for hours and hours on this stuff because I'm, I'm so OCD about it. But uh, <laughs> the uh, the love of learning, I think, comes from experiencing a sense of wonder. And I think that to experience wonder, which is a real, uh, it's really almost extinct in modern in the, in modern life. It's it's sad. Uh, but a friend of mine uh, a few years ago, a very uh, very very smart guy named Josh Waitzkin, who is the the chess master and Incredible. He, he's the basis for the movie Searching for Bobby Fischer. Uh, said to me, this year I want to really focus on wonder. And I think one of the ways that you can rediscover wonder is by writing down a list of the things that you are, let's just say in a physical capacity to keep it simple, what you're most insecure about. What are the things that you've decided you will never be good at? What are the things you've decided you can never change? And for me, one of those things was swimming. I couldn't swim. I was completely incapable of uh, staying afloat for more than a few minutes. Couldn't swim two laps. And uh, then I set out on this process of discovery uh, to find the anomalies, to find the training methods, and eventually did find total immersion and went from swimming two laps to swimming 40 laps per workout in the span of seven to ten days. And like, And I remember... Uh, a friend of mine, uh, Chris, had set me what Chris and I do every year on uh, New Year's Eve is we set we set each other New Year's resolutions. <laughs> so, and and his resolution for me was you have to swim a one kilometer open water race by the end of this year. And at that point, I couldn't swim. 
And uh, so I said to him, okay, fine. If I'm going to do that, you have to go the entire year without having any stimulant stronger than green tea. No coffee, no espresso, nothing. So we both agreed. And uh, I remember later that year in the summer on Long Island, the day I, I wasn't able to get to a proper race because the closest one was in Bonaire. And I was like, well, eh. you know, I'd arrive at six and have to race at eight. I was like, well, eh. um, I think I'll take a pass on that. But what I did instead was I went to the ocean on Long Island and uh, swam a little bit over a mile, which is uh, like 1.6 kilometers, if I'm not mistaken, something like that. Yeah. And got out of the water, was not tired, was not stressed, and just felt like the king of the world. And like that was a real moment of wonder. I had this glow, this complete glow, afterglow effect for for at least a week afterwards. And so finding those moments so that you associate learning and the entire process with these moments of extreme bliss is is how I would try to get people to to become better learners. Because the only way you become a better learner is by trying to learn many different things. Uh, so that's a long answer to a short question, but it's a it's a subject that I'm very very uh, fascinated by and passionate about. Yeah, I I love it, and and I, I I wonder how anyone could possibly not love marketing. And if you're still wondering about it, you need to wonder about it more till you get to the point where you manifest the deep love and appreciation that the whole subject deserves. And that was not meant to be taken seriously. Hey, we're ready to wrap up. Dean, anything else you want to, you want to ask or say to Tim and then we will uh, recommend that people read his blog and, and all that stuff. Cause it's, it's fantastic. Anything yeah. else you want to ask before? We yeah, absolutely. Up? Tim, that's, it's been great. Thank you very much for sharing with us. I think everybody, especially even this stuff about learning your models and the way that you, uh, that you approach it. I found that fascinating. Very valuable. Thank you. Yeah, thanks yeah. for having me. That was just fun. And I, and I will say, uh, you know, t- Tim, uh, w- you used to have the four-hour uh, uh, blog uh, as, um, you know, when the four-hour work week came out. Now you've incorporated the four-hour body. So what, you know, what do people learn when they go to your blog? I mean, what's the point of it? Uh, I mean, I know there's a lot of things, but what's the, uh, uh, it's the way you could summarize what is the, uh, what is your blog and Tim Ferriss about? What do you represent? What do you do? What, mm-hmm. what do they so, get there? So the title, the title of the blog, I think, is is actually still accurate, uh, which is experiments in lifestyle design, and that is very broad on purpose, uh, which incorporates uh, trying to find better ways to design an ideal lifestyle trying to find better ways to improve your quality of life, uh, which could be learning a language. It could be improving income or profiling a company that uh, has come out of uh, the four-hour work week, for example. Uh, there are many, many out there. Uh, looking at better ways of doing, uh, of solving common problems. What are the best ways, the fastest ways to get from point A to point B with very, very common problems or very, very common goals. And fortunately, I have access to a lot of good people and a lot of good resources. So I can, I have the opportunity to play the guinea pig for things that other people may not have uh, the access to test or may not have the funding to test. And I'll go out and do it. And then I'll report back. And if it sucked and it didn't work, I'll, I'll tell you and I'll tell you how I think it can be fixed. If it did work. Uh, like the last post that I just put up, which is on uh, how to create a movie trailer for your product. Uh, I, I created a trailer, movie trailer for the four-hour body, which 
took it from 150 on Amazon to 30, and then later took it, uh, you know, led it uh, partially to number one. It certainly contributed. Uh, went through exactly how we produced, how we filmed, uh, how we planned, how we story uh, storyboarded the entire uh, the entire trailer, so that people can go and do the same thing if they so desire. And uh, the blog uh, the blog is about sharing learning experiences of those types. Yeah, it, and it, it it is really awesome. So if you're not already a reader uh, of Tim's blog, we highly recommend you go there. And like I said earlier, um, I've done a couple of great interviews with Tim. Uh, we're gonna, I'm going to post it up as uh, for free on ilovemarketing.com. My interview with you on the Four Hour Body, and um, yeah, we just really appreciate you talking about your perspectives on marketing and. Um, yeah, you, you put out some awesome stuff. So thank you very much. Any famous last words? Uh, I mean, it, you know, who do you like better, me or Dean, or any anything you'd like to wrap up with? <laughs> I dislike you both equally. No, that's <laughs> perfect. <laughs> uh, I, yeah, I'll give you another Mark Twain quote that I've been thinking about a lot recently, which is uh, something along these lines. I might mangle it a little bit, but uh, what hurts us isn't what we don't know. It's what we know that just ain't so. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, uh, test assumptions. That's, that's all. That's what I spend a lot of my time on and really enjoy. And I think that also opens up the wonder factor. So, uh, the test those basic assumptions, the things that you think you can't do, the things that you think you shouldn't do, uh, you know, obviously within the, the realms of ethics and law. Don't be an idiot about it. Uh, but uh, really the, those, those constraints that you've set for yourself or that you believe to exist, test those. And uh, there are easy ways to do it. So I'll, I'll leave it at that. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you so much, Tim. And to our listeners, uh, give us your comments. And uh, anything from you, Dean, or are we done? That's perfect. Thanks, guys. Thanks.